0: again, friends, it's Misty here, and today I am talking to somebody who is very close to the agency business. Not everyone we have on the show is all about marketing, but this woman knows agencies inside and out because she spends most of her days helping them build their business plans. I'm actually talking to Shannon Lee. She is the managing director of an organization called Win Without Pitching, and she helps agencies position their business and use a unique approach to help them with sales. So, whether you're in the agency world, because I know we have a lot of agency listeners, or maybe you're even on the client side, you're going to take a lot away from what she has to share today. I always find that when you talk to an organization like Win Without Pitching, right? Like you think it's going to be all about helping agencies grow their business, when in fact, I view it as a way for clients to sort of have a peek under the hood and understand how they can create stronger partnerships with their agencies and maybe even take some of these insights as they seek to grow their own organizations, sell up the ladder, influence, you know, save costs. There's so many ways, if you creatively think about these themes, that these principles can actually apply client side too. So, on a personal level, I've really sort of like come to love Shannon. I love how she presents herself, I love the way her brain works. She has a YouTube channel that you should all check out. I sent it out to my client services team because there is just so much richness of good content in her brain that she gives away. So please, please, please have a listen, enjoy the show. And I will tell you more about how to get in touch with Win Without Pitching on the other side. All right. I am excited to announce that we have Shannon Lee here with an organization called Win Without Pitching, which is an awesome organization that I reached out to just a few weeks ago, actually. They go by WWP and Shannon helps organizations figure out how to position themselves, which is something that Samantha has struggled with for many years on and off. It's a conversation we keep circling back to. And the minute I met you, Shannon, I could tell you practice what you preach and you were awesome in terms of consulting with me in the moment so welcome. I'm so glad you agreed to be here.
1: Thank you, Misty. Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Perfect. So as I always do, I would love, before we dig into your business and your career background, to talk a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your story, your personal life, and kind of how you came up in the world.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I think my earliest memories honestly revolve around horses. (laughs) So I was lucky enough growing up to grow up on a a little farm, a small farm, um, just outside of Spokane, Washington, and I had a dream come true moment where I got home one day from playing with a friend, and my mom and dad and grandma and grandpa were waiting there with a little white pony and a red oh, ribbon goodness. around its neck. Yeah, and so I grew up sort of a bit as a farm kid, but we were close enough to the city that you know we could take the bus in and go downtown and do stuff like that. So I I feel like I had a really Fun childhood filled with people who were really supportive and always told me I could do whatever I wanted. So I grew up that way, thinking, you know what, if I want to do it, I can do it. And it led to a lot of different great moments in life and then moments where I, you know, stumbled and had to get back up again. And the thread of horses, I think, plays a role in that because you learn a lot when you own a horse. And to this day, I'm still involved in the horse community. So just a little bit about where I'm from.
0: That's awesome. So I read a little bit about you. So you it sounds like you grew into a role in writing and journalism. That's what you went to school for?
1: Yeah, I went to school for international business and in Spanish and the the writing piece of the equation actually started with my dad, because if we ever came home and said, oh, I'm bored, he would give me a National Geographic magazine, and i have to read an article and then write a five-paragraph paper. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and he had a love of words and language, and so I really took to that. And so I think that kind of side of my brain, communicating, speaking, writing, was always developed and supported, and I really flourished there. And so... When I decided on the degree, that really had more to do with also getting out in the world and experiencing more than just my own backyard, and it kind of turned into what it is today. It was a winding journey, but definitely that writing and communications component's always been there.
0: I started in journalism too. So I have a love of writing. So we have that in common. Yep. But when I looked at all the different roles you've played throughout your career, I mean, everything from director of communications to investor relations to financial communication. So that gene of communication and writing and coaching and you know, all the things that we love in this business came through. But I was surprised at the diversity within that yeah. lane. So talk a little bit about your career trajectory and how you sort of chose that path.
1: Yeah. So I thought for a while that I wanted to be an ambassador to a foreign country, and that's why I chose to go to Argentina and lived and studied in Buenos Aires for a couple of years and actually like took the civil service exam, worked at the embassy, and decided mm, in the end, I want to be back in the US and I want to do something different than that, which was fine. And I ended up coming home and landing in my first corporate position. And it was a PR role for Cinnabon, world famous Cinnabon. Yeah, they were privately held at that point. And I really, again, like found my lane in terms of PR and investor communications and marketing and all of those components of the business where you're kind of out front representing and Mm -hmm. was just fortunate along the way to work for a lot of different uh, big companies, AT&T Wireless, Safeco Insurance. But through that journey, I also learned that the bigger the experience, the more politics involved, the less I felt I was contributing, and I lost myself along the way yeah. and was lucky enough that I was in the position to hire design agencies. And one of the design agencies that I had hired to do corporate reports for AT&T Wireless asked me to come on board in a sales and marketing role. So then I pivoted to the other side and went to the agency side of the world.
0: That's so cool. So do you feel like you're an agency girl at heart? Because I feel like once you're in this business, people jump back and forth.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine ever going back to the client Mm -hmm. side. And so I do think that that agency side of the world lives deep within me and it, it resonated and it mattered. And I loved the people that I got to work with. And One of the things along the way that happened was I met Blair Enns, who's the founder of Win Without Pitching. And we had hired him to come into one of the agencies I worked for to help us just rethink the way that we sold. And it really was a game changer for me. And he became a mentor. And that's what ultimately led to me being at Win Without Pitching. He called one day and asked me to come on board as a coach. So I still get all that great benefit of working with agencies and now doing it in a coaching and training capacity.
0: Awesome. So was that during the time that you spent at Catapult?
1: Yeah. The agency that I was with when I met Blair was a Seattle-based branding and design firm. And I went to Catapult after that. Okay. And yeah, so Catapult was was a fun journey too over about four years of selling for lots of different agencies, different size, discipline, geographic location. And I was lucky to know Blair at that time because he would refer clients to us, oh, a catapult cool. that were well-positioned and I would always get those clients. And that was the great kind of client type to work
0: with. Oh, I yeah. love it. Some of my you know biggest clients today started agency side and they say, you almost have to have that in you to kind of navigate yeah. a big corporation. And yeah. so it sounds like you have a similar journey there. Talk a little bit about your coaching experience. Like where did that come from?
1: I think part of it was in me. And what I've figured out over time is I came to Win Without Pitching with subject matter expertise around positioning firms and selling and feeling comfortable in the sale. So I had that piece of it that was learned and developed. But the piece that was sort of already in me was this ability to have patience and to sit in what i describe as like messiness and tension with my clients when they're working through hard moments as an adult in the developmental learning journey and changing behaviors so it took all of that subject matter expertise to do what i do today but then what i feel i've really tapped into and love is just this ability to be there and empower and speak the kind but ruthless truth that needs to be told sometimes and and be okay Mm -hmm. with all that and let it play out and trust that that client will get there when the time is right for them.
0: Well, when I said out of the gate that you practice what you preach, I felt the calm confidence from the start and I know that you teach that and I'm gonna be having lots of questions for you about that today. That's <laughs> something we're trying to teach in our organization. So good for you. So talk a little bit about Blair then. So it sounds like he's been a mentor for some time, but how do you guys partner today at Win Without Pitching? And Talk a little bit about your organization.
1: Yeah, sure. So we're focused on sales training for creative professionals. And we do everything from help teams to position their business and be seen as meaningfully different in the market to adopting a sales process and philosophy that sees them doing things like lowering cost of sale, increasing prices, just being that expert practitioner in the sale. Right. Blair's the founder. And so he, over the last few years, was really on a mission to get out of the day-to-day of running the business and really free himself up to be the visionary that he is and be out there thinking, speaking, and writing on our behalf. And so that is where his focus is today. He's working on his next book, actually, as we speak. And I lead the sales and marketing and training and delivery and client success portion of the business alongside his wife, Colette, who's his business partner. And she runs the publishing side of the company. So that's how we all kind of coexist together. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. So loved it. I mean, I've looked into his books. Are you a writer too?
1: I'm not. I haven't written a book yet, but there's ideas there. I I would say that my writing really has revolved more around kind of content and thought leadership and insights. And I've done less writing lately because I'm in charge of our YouTube channel. So I do a Mm -hmm. lot more YouTube video production these days. Yeah. So it's a mix.
0: Yeah. Talk about that. I sent the link out to our client services team because, oh my gosh, the richness of these sort of like soundbite videos that you can watch in a few minutes is so good.
1: It's fun. It's our way to do a little giving and give people just a a taste of what they can learn if they decide to continue that journey with us. And so we have this YouTube channel where you can ask us anything you submit a question and I'll answer it and sometimes I just get on also and talk about what am I seeing this week with my clients what's hard for them and how do you solve for these things
0: so cool I want to dig in most of our conversation today to talk about the curriculum that you provided to me as a taste of kind of what you guys do. And I know you deliver it in a whole bunch of different formats. And I think I told you via email, I would love to focus this conversation a little bit on how you help agencies, of course, but also like how these concepts help clients. And I know that seems a little bit counterintuitive, but I think it's so important not only in their agency relationships, but then sort of how they think about their own business. They can use the same ideas to get super creative.
1: I agree. And I really think that our approach to selling is completely in service of making sure that that agency delivers as much value as possible to that client. And so I advocate as much as possible for clients to let win without pitching agencies if they come across one to go through that process because you're going to not only find an agency that's meaningfully different, but you're going to find an agency that wants to talk about the value they can bring and in some cases will be willing to tie compensation to achieving metrics. It's, it's really focused mm-hmm. on how can we make change for this
0: client. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I know that we're going to have some clients listening today, so they're going to take all kinds of nuggets on how to work with us and other agencies and and hopefully for themselves. So there's three buckets that we are going to talk about today. Sales-focused curriculum, expertise-building curriculum, and then the last bucket is kind of your graduate level, which is some interesting areas that I'm going to ask you to coach me in the moment. So, Sure. Let's talk about sales. So the two buckets there are navigating the sale and closing the sale. I'm going to get really granular. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) One of the very first sort of in the weeds questions I have for you is actually super basic around managing your CRM. It Mm. is so important. Sabanil has a CRM and it's a conversation we're having right now about organizing the lead stages of the funnel and and how are we going to set that criteria and, and how do we keep it up to date and who's owning the leads and all of those things. So talk a little bit about your philosophies in that space.
1: Yeah. So your CRM is important. We don't think you have to have the highest end version of a CRM to get yourself organized. Some of my clients use an Excel spreadsheet and it works just fine for them. depends on your need. But when we think about how the buyer moves through a journey, we also want to map that journey to how we track stages in our own CRM and our client's CRM, uh, client relationship management tool. So we think about helping those buyers who are unaware. We think about inspiring the interested and reassuring intent and then creating value. And so what I mean by that is a buyer finds you through your leadership, let's say, and they reach out and they want to have a conversation. So they're unaware to a degree at this point. And so your job in that journey is to qualify them to find out, is this a good fit? Does an opportunity exist? And so as we move through each stage of the buyer's journey, we also are moving them along in the stages of the CRM. And I'm checking in on it daily uh, when I'm selling and having sales conversations and making sure I'm driving next steps and keeping good notes in my CRM. So if I'm not there for whatever reason, one day somebody else can pick up where I left off. And it also helps you, I think, if you're managing your CRM right and you have these buyer's sales journey uh, steps mapped out, it helps you from a behavioral perspective to understand where the buyer is and to plug in the right conversation that needs to be had and to bring the right set of behaviors and to drive the next step and move them through their steps in the journey to decide should we work together or not.
0: Well, it's helpful to hear those stages. And I noticed that it actually ties to your curriculum around lead generation a little bit because yeah. you have this idea of tier one, meaning you're driving inbound leads, tier two, meaning names on a list, and tier three, meaning prospects.
1: Yeah. So tier one, I would just say it's they're already following you. They've subscribed to your thought leadership maybe. And so they've demonstrated interest, but they just haven't raised their hand yet and say, I I need help.
0: Well, and I think this is something I know we struggle with as an agency. We have names on a list and certainly prospects that we may already be working with at some degree. It's that broader like bucket right, of the universe of possibilities that maybe are going to be the long-term focus just because we've been an agency focused on relationship building and organic growth and doing good work. So how do you help organizations that want to scale understand how important that long-term content strategy piece is when they're so focused on their clients that maybe they're not doing it for themselves?
1: i know right that and that's exactly what happens it's yes. really hard to build that process and discipline in your own agency to do a good job of your own marketing efforts and so we think about it in three ways you want to attract three different types of leads and there are different ways to attract those leads and once they come in the door different kinds of conversations to have with them and if you're attracting these three different types of leads like you said tier 1 tier 2 and tier 3 it means you have a a better pipeline to work from and more visibility potentially into what your revenue is going to look like quarter to quarter. So the tier 1 leads, those who find you and see you as different and say I need your help are harder to attract because you have to do that through building awareness and through providing insights and expertise. So that's sure. your marketing. Yeah. Sure. So while you can't wait around to attract a bunch of tier one leads, you have to be thinking about what immediate action can I take to drive some conversation. So if you go to the other end of the spectrum, that's tier three leads. That's a name on a list. They don't know you, you don't know them, but based on your expertise, you have a sense that they might have a need for your help. So you would build a top 10 list and do some proactive outreach and introduce yourself. That's immediacy, but it comes with lower power in the sale because you have to Help them to see why you're different before you can begin to qualify and see if there's an opportunity.
0: And that's right where we are, Shannon, is that top Mm -hmm. 10 list. And so what do you advise? I think we've always had the philosophy that if you tell people you want to work with them, sometimes they're like, oh, okay, let's have a conversation. But you know, with the story around that, and I know another thing you and I talked about on our initial call was just like having a point of view.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The ask really... Is grounded in your positioning. So you do want to be seen as meaningfully different. And what I mean by that is you have an area of focus. You are clear about your discipline and you're clear about the market that you serve. And it doesn't always mean you have to go all in on a vertical like marketing for finance. There are other ways to kind of think about how to position yourself, but you have to be able to go in and clearly say, this is who we help and this is how we help. So I'm Shannon from Win Without Pitching, and we focus on sales training for creative professionals. Now then, the next layer, like you said, is perspective. What is your ideology? What sets you apart from your competition? What are your non-negotiables and what you believe must happen to bring that work to bear? So for us, our perspective is right in our name, Win Without Pitching. So you have to create a perspective to then further the conversation, right? Here's what we believe and here's why we believe it. If we're doing marketing for finance and when you reach out to a tier three lead who doesn't know you, it is a very clear ask. You're stating who you are and who you help and how, and then you're asking, would you like to have a conversation? Yes. And there's a tool that we call the hero piece that is usually a long form piece of written content. Our hero piece is the one without pitching manifesto. It's a book. Sometimes it's a book. And that typically is your anchor piece of thought leadership that you can send to somebody to say, this is what we believe. And if you're aligned or if you want to think about things differently, here's who we are, right? So sure. it could be a good way to, to warm up and introduce yourself. I love But that. I think it's got to be grounded in differentiation and it's got to be a, a clear, direct ask. And my favorite sign-off line in those kind of emails is feel free to say no if the timing isn't right or you just don't see a fit.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah
1: that will increase your response yeah. rate.
0: Totally makes sense, and I I have all kinds of ideas running through my head about what I need to go do after this conversation, but talk a little bit about one of the things I read too in your expert lead generation curriculum is this idea that you can combine those prospects into a 12-month program. So how does that work in the way of making sure you have sort of a diversified prospect list?
1: Yeah, it's really a process and infrastructure and creating a plan that you will work that is not overcomplicated. For that person who is a small business owner, you don't necessarily have a big marketing team who's just producing content for you all day long. So you have to decide, what's the one form of lead generation I am just gonna own and do a great job of? And maybe it's writing articles, maybe it's a podcast. And then how can I leverage the daylights out of that so that I'm putting fresh thinking into the world monthly to build awareness and keep my subscribers interested? And I think thinking six or 12 months out Is just a smart way to stay organized, to check in, to make sure you're getting things done and thinking through that idea of the articles will hopefully attract those tier one leads, but the top 10 list is what I can build and do some outreach. And then I've maybe got a good little marketing automation tool that tells me who opens my emails and maybe after three opens, I decide they're interested enough. So I'm going to give them a call and see if they want to talk or drop them an email So you're kind of working these different types of leads month to month.
0: And do you assign a value to a lead once you identify an opportunity?
1: The value is really what you uncover in the qualifying conversation in terms of the budget they have allocated for whatever initiative you're talking about. And then you can begin to assign your own values around likelihood of closing. Sure. Right, But you have to be careful because... Those of us who love to sell will always be a little more optimistic about closing that <laughs> client than others. Right. <laughs> so it's really doing a good job of vetting them through the qualifying conversation to really decide are they a real opportunity? Okay, then what is the value of the opportunity and what is the likelihood of close? And sure. that would be how I would probably go about assigning sure. value.
0: Well, and we'll talk in a little bit about how to sell smaller projects that lead to bigger projects. I know that's one of your strategies. But let's talk more about the qualifying conversation. So you talk a lot about uncovering underlying needs instead of the stated ask. And I know that's something that even clients that we've worked with for years, I think we fall into the trap of just like taking orders, right? Because they have yes. a need and they have a tactic and you just do it. And I especially honed in on, and I don't know if you'll give it away, but this one question that helps mm-hmm. you understand what every decision maker wants. So yep. talk a little bit about your philosophy philosophies here. Yeah.
1: so the qualifying conversation is it's just that it's a conversation you're not trying to sell anything. so i really want people to remove that pressure for themselves because i think that's where people get a little hung up and kind of go sideways in the sale. you want to give a lot of time and attention to learning as much as you can about that opportunity and that prospect and then decide at the end should we keep talking. Sure. so that's the first thing you're not selling anything in that conversation. be yourself. Do not yes. try to take on some sales robot mode. And while that client may be coming to you to design a website, that's the need, but that's not the want. right. And so that's where that magic question comes in. And we learned that question from Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach. Okay. And the question is, you and I are sitting down three years from today, and you're really happy. What's happened in those three years to yep. make you so happy? Yeah, And it's a beautiful visioning question. Yes. Because you put the client into the future and you learn a lot more about, well, what would make them happy be on that website? And through that that question, yeah, you more easily and comfortably can talk about, well, what kind of funds have you allocated to achieve that vision? Yes. Who's going to be a part of the team that helps you to decide which agency to hire? You know, so a lot of it becomes grounded in their vision, not how much you cost, not those things that sometimes get people a little hung up.
0: I love that. We actually have an exercise we call Why Nirvana? And it's usually more in a kickoff workshop with a client where we're at, we're talking about stated goals and things they think they want, right? Mm-hmm. But then we uncover barriers to achieving those and then what their Nirvana state is. Like, what does success yes. look like, to your point, three years from now? What does it look like, feel like? And it probably would be more helpful to ask that in a new business situation <laughs> and wait until they're <laughs> they're assigned client, right?
1: Yeah, I think it helps you identify a bigger opportunity, potentially. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's use my call to you as an example, because yeah. I think that you just sort of talked me out of what I thought I wanted. You certainly dug in much deeper into our business process, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. If we think about the the client side of this for a second, I would want the agency that I'm looking at to better understand what's the bigger picture here, because there is likely a lot going on, and especially if you're trying to bring an expert in that you may be thinking about incorrectly as your actual challenge, right? So it benefits everybody to just take a moment to do that visioning.
0: I love that. Let's talk about the Jedi mindset because I love (laughs) that phrase and like I had to literally go look it up. (laughs) What does it mean? But it's like this idea of peace, serenity, harmony, using the force. And I'm like, this is confidence is what she's talking about, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: No, I think you're right. And Blair's a huge Star Wars fan. So like, (laughs) there's all sorts of fun things like that throughout the content. But the, the Jedi mindset is just that. It is a mantra to help you get in the right frame of mind before you have a conversation with a client. And it flips the script because it says, I am the expert. I am the prize to be one, not the opposite. Not the client is the prize to be one. And not a place, not coming from a place of arrogance, but I'm the expert here. I'm working from a higher mission. So I am the expert. I am the prize to be one. I am on a mission to help. And in order for me to help, you must let me lead and all will not follow, and that is okay. And if you can give yourself that five to 10 minutes before a a sales conversation and say that mantra and get in that mindset, the goal is you're clear and you're kind of hovering from 30,000 feet above and you're emotionally detached, and you're in the mode of demonstrating selectivity to see if this project is a fit for your expertise.
0: Well, one of the ways I can tell you are emotionally detached, and I actually had another guest on this season that talked about how sometimes we as women get really excited and we get all our emotion and we like start talking fast and the pitch in our voice goes up. But like I noticed, Shannon, when you sell or even how you're talking today, you Mm -hmm. keep this sort of very calm, monotone sort of like approach, right? And, And it does. It instills confidence and trust that you know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, it feels good and natural for me now, but it was hard-earned like anything. Sure, sure. And I think where it really comes from, of course, from a selling perspective is learning the win-without-pitching way of selling, which made so much sense to me way back when I met Blair and knowing right that I have something of value to offer. I have a right to be in that room. And you know what? It's okay. If, if they don't think it's a fit, and they don't want to work with me and my firm, that's all right. Not everybody does and no hard feelings. So I think you come to believe it and really own it after a while. And after enough like stumbles and falls and proving to yourself that just like Brene Brown says, right? Like I'm good enough. Right. I really am.
0: Yeah. I I learned this from my business partner, Tim. You know, he says, if you just act like you know what you're doing, people are going to believe it. (laughs) I think that's so awesome. Exactly. Totally. And the other thing I would add to that, I did go out and watch some of your YouTube videos. When you're introducing yourself as this Jedi sort of persona, one of the things you talked about is the three steps of kind of how we approach new business, right? And you walked them down the path of the three Mm -hmm. conversations we're going to have. And I just love that. So let's share a little bit more about that.
1: We call that making the framework visible and it's a way of demonstrating selectivity to the client that hey i'm looking at you just as much as you're looking at me and it's a way to reassure i think as well reassure that client that we have a process i'm not going to go down a rabbit hole this is not going to take weeks and weeks and you know dozens of hours to decide because your time is valuable and we get that and so here's how we decide if we should work together Mm -hmm. and You got to just let people know up front because I think it really comforts everybody and everybody takes a breath and then they have a good conversation as a result.
0: I love it. Well, and these two last points you made about the qualifying conversation and the Jedi mindset, I do think they apply not just to agency sales, but I have so many clients who have to sell up and out, right, throughout highly matrixed organizations. And so much of the work we do as an agency is just like helping them tell that story. And I mean, as leaders, a big part of our job is the sale.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Why not, if you're a client working on your own internal initiatives, use some of those tactics? Why not ask some of your internal stakeholders, well, what is your vision? Who is involved that is on the team that needs to be a part of these conversations? Like, I think you really can take components of this and flip the script, so to speak.
0: Yeah. It's such a facilitative style of leadership. I love that. All right, and then I have a whole section here um, of questions for you about closing the sale because I think this is really hard. Personally, you talk about the value conversation, which I love. And I think that I was very lucky from a young age. Every proposal that I wrote wasn't about scope. It was about value. I had to build that language into what we were talking about. But I do think that can be a lost art in some ways. So what do you make of that? What do you teach the agencies that you're working with?
1: So we think closing should be all about facilitating to a choice, not like the dog and pony, big reveal, high pressure situation that it can be. And if you are well positioned, you have a good qualifying conversation, a productive value conversation, the closing conversation should be about facilitating a choice around one of the three options you're putting in front of that client. Mm -hmm. And the way to get to that three option proposal and a good closing meeting is through the value conversation. And to your point, you are so solely focused on the value you can create for that client. What components of their vision are most important if you can't do it all, right? Mm-hmm. And how are we going to know if we're successful? What are the metrics that we're going to track? Right. And based on that, Miss Client, what does a fair investment look like for us to do this work? So right. you're really digging in and focusing on them so that you can then walk away and start thinking about solutions at that point when you're thinking about the options you're going to put together when you go back into the closing meeting and talk them through how you might solve it. And so it, again, is just this facilitated conversation that's very focused on creating value for them all the way through that they know what's going on so that they know the range you're working within. So they're not seeing a price for the first time in the closing meeting. Like we're in sync together is so much of what it's about. And just having honest conversations where sometimes you need to maybe push back on the challenge itself or kind of speak truth to power, it's a little more filled with empathy, frankly.
0: Yeah. Well, everything we've talked about so far in the conversation, in many ways, feels like just good agency best practice. I mean, there's so many organizations out there that teach some of these concepts. But when you and I were talking last time, you said you feel like you guys' differentiator is that you really make it practical. And I've seen that in my sort of early relationship with you. Like, You take the concepts and you break them down into these really like tangible tools. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think it is fair. And it goes back to this idea of having a framework to help guide you through each conversation and a tool that like sits right there in front of you at your desk that keeps you focused on, these are the five things I've got to learn and having an understanding of what it means to drive next steps coming out of each conversation. So there's these frameworks, right? And then there's also the the discipline and practice that we bring through role-playing with our clients in coaching sessions and helping them find the language that is true to them. It's how they would sound if they talked and helps them to overcome whatever is hard for them in the sale, like talking about money or trying to get to the decision maker. So it's customized, even though it's based on frameworks and it's repetitive learning through role play and practice. And then coming back after you've tried it and talking through what worked, what didn't, let's go do it again. And so it does take time. It doesn't happen overnight, Sure, but it works if you put the time in
0: and you have several different offerings some more off the shelf curriculum based mm-hmm. but then also really custom workshops can you talk a little bit about the difference in those two and and who might need what
1: yeah sure we have what we call our our public workshop which is open to 20 firms at a time when we offer it and it's a 4 day 3 hour a day virtual workshop where blair and i are leading the workshop and we're guiding Our clients through each of these frameworks, it's very hands-on, you're role-playing, you're going into breakout rooms on Zoom, and you walk away getting a real dose of how we work and how we sell, and you can go put these things into practice right away. Then we have boot camps, if you wanna go deeper into a topic like positioning or pricing over a six-week sprint. And then we have private training where we'll customize something for you and your team if you have multiple people that need to be trained.
0: That's awesome. And do you do most yeah. of the facilitation of the the private ones? Yep, I do. So fun. All right. I want to circle back though to the closing of the sale. So one of the things you write about is this idea of paid diagnostics or pilot mm. projects, which is a strategy we've used time and again. How do you talk about what you give away, what you discount? Do you discount or mm. do you just do it and hope that it grows? And what if it doesn't?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we think of like a paid diagnostic or a pilot project as a way to take a small first step together. So you both can get a sense of chemistry and how you work and some of the early value that can be won from these smaller engagements before you like agree to the whole giant engagement. So sometimes clients aren't ready just to take the whole initiative. They just need that small first step to do a gut check. So that's a tactic you can use in a sale with a diagnostic or a pilot project. When we think about discounting or what do we give away, we never <laughs> discount. Yeah. yeah, that is reserved for your very best clients if sure. you ever choose to do it. And sure. you can use that language, right? Like the bigger thing to me, if you're being asked to do those things in a sale is why would you want us to give you a discount? Because yeah. and, and, you really got to put that objection back on that client yeah. to answer to. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I got to switch to this sort of idea of working with purchasing departments. So fun of a topic. And I have to say the, the purchasing agents that we have to work with seem to be super reasonable. So I'm so thankful for that. But I do love the tactics of purchasing. It's so intriguing to me to get the emails. and And I wrote down, you have stalls, standoffs, rabbits and white knights. What is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, those are some of the fun little tactics in the sale if you uh, need to kind of stand your ground. So if purchasing or procurement shows up in the sale early, that is where you have the least power. If they show up in the sale later, you have more power than most people understand. But if they show up early and they're leading the process, you have to remember what their motive is. And their motive is to squeeze you on cost at any and all Possibility, right? Right. And you also have to remember you're not dealing with the law, you're dealing with a company's (laughs) policies, right? And so you want to be able to stand up for yourself in this moment and do these kind of behavior checks to see what they might be willing to give. And you may win and you may not, but you have to make the effort. And what I mean by that is when you get hit with an RFP, I would be asking those. Questions like first and foremost, why us? Why are we on this list? Right. Right. And why are you choosing an RFP process to run this search? Right. So you're looking for information to help you derail the pitch, gain the inside track, get them to treat you differently, and give you a concession. And I think what you really just always have to have in the back of your mind is procurement can be hard to deal with. It sounds like you're lucky you have some good procurement and purchasing people that you deal with. So you have to be ready to like win or lose and walk away if you feel like you've not differentiated yourself or affected the buying process at all. Absolutely. And if you choose not to walk away, which is okay, because sometimes you can't derail those processes, then it becomes about looking your team in the eye and supporting each other, win or lose, right? We yeah. have each other's back. We're going to do this even though we don't like it. Right. And just trying to limit the time that you're spending on that sale.
0: I love that so everything we did touched on sales and expertise building let's dig into some of your graduate level curriculum Mm -hmm. and this is a passion point for me right now the first sort of section is sort of the ip right of an organization Mm -hmm. and when i read about kind of how you guys think about that whether it's like knowing your model working a prototype building your diagnostic leveraging your model is what you're talking about there really understanding like your process as product as your ip
1: when we think about creating a model, it is Mm -hmm. beyond your process. And sometimes you have to start with your process. Like sometimes it's just what you have and what you have to think through. But the way that we think about a model or IP is something that is uniquely yours in how you view the world. And so if we think about our model at Win Without Pitching, we think about this model that sees you from starting as a vendor and moving towards an expert practitioner in your behavior and in your tactics. And there's a journey that has to take place in order for you to get there. Mm. And so we really present our view of the world in terms of this buyer's journey and how you show up in that buyer's journey and how you get out of that order taker mode to that expert practitioner mode. And here are the things you're likely grappling with from a process perspective, from a mindset perspective, and here are the teachings and trainings we layer on to make that shift happen. And so it's bigger than process in that sense. And it usually is a tool that you use earlier in the sale to really help that person see where they fit in the world and how their clients potentially benefit from your view of the world and the work that you bring to bear.
0: I love that. Yeah, I think our model as an agency has evolved so much through the years. We used to have one we called brand discovery and Mm -hmm. very old school audit, do some research, set the strategy and Mm -hmm. then launch it and leave it, right? But the model has changed so much over time with digital. And so now we have something we call the marketing maturity roadmap, which seems to resonate Mm -hmm. with clients. They can sort of see themselves in it and like what part of it they need. But I also feel like from a productizing standpoint we have such rich ip within different verticals of our organization whether it's our content production model or our marketing automation programs you know so do you work with clients to take sort of what is their umbrella model and figure out how to build ip within
1: yeah definitely and that idea of the marketing maturity model that that's a great example of you can show your client where they are and where they can get to but what the gap is yes. and that's what we're talking about is like here's how we view the world here's how you should view the world and here's how we'll move you to where you need to be. And so once you understand how to build a model, which is part of what you learn in that IP term is like flexing your model building muscle, then you see models everywhere and you will go build models for the other parts of your business that are your very valuable IP that need to be codified and can turn into tools during the sale tools during the work after action review so yes is the answer. There's a lot of rich work
0: there. Is there a criteria though like literally to be able to claim something as IP? I wondered that like to, to go out and trademark a process or an approach.
1: That I'm not sure. That I don't know enough about how do you go trademark something. Sure. I think what's required first though is sound positioning. Sure. Because it's super hard to create any of this unless you have an area of specialization and a point of view. Yes. And then it really becomes about your documentation of it so that there's proof that you own it, you've built it, you live it, you breathe it. And you do that then through your thought leadership, through your own models that you build and are documented that you show in sales meetings or it may exist on your website or in a book that you wrote. So it's more about pulling it out of your head and getting it documented on paper.
0: So true. Yeah. And yeah. everything you just said is what I would say a trademark attorney would say like you have to show you're using it and in what classes yeah. and what regions and that sort of well, thing so i think that's fair yeah. okay <laughs> and so then i guess my final question for you as it relates to your curriculum is just i think it's interesting that you say that the case studies should be framed against the process and so mm-hmm. on the surface i was like of course it tells a story it's templated but like why is it so important that your case studies are formatted that way
1: I think we need to make it easy for our clients to buy from us, and we need to demystify what happens when we go away and do the work. And that helps to reassure. And so that process frame case study exists for that reason. Like, I can show you outcomes all day long, but the client really wants to know, like, well, how'd you do that, though? And where do I fit in? And what am I on the hook for? And when you create a a process frame case study, you're also able to really demonstrate here's how we diagnose and here's the density and messiness and complicated nature of really digging in and discovering and diagnosing and working to clarity when we prescribe a solution or a strategy. And it helps that client to see why they need you also. And then we think about initial application. Maybe it's a logo that you designed and reapplication. Maybe it's billboards or advertising so that you're showing proven, repeatable process. And they're going to get those outcomes that you deliver to others because you've got a proven, repeatable process.
0: Awesome. Love it. All right. So before I switch gears and ask you a few things about you as a leader, is there anything you want to add about Win Without Pitching or maybe a topic area we didn't cover?
1: I think that it just is great for anybody who's trying to figure out how do I get more comfortable selling and promoting my business to just go spend some time on our website and read the thought leadership or listen to the two Bobs podcast that Uh, Blair does. Love. I
0: love that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: A treasure trove of great, very usable, actionable insights.
0: Very cool. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Samantha. I happen to know a thing or two about them because, well, I'm one of the owners we are an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focused on customer experience. We create killer campaigns, but we also help organizations create programs that align back to their business strategies. Most importantly, we have a lot of fun and love what we do. And this year marks 40-ish years of doing it. Unfortunately, there's not enough time to explain the ish on this promo. But if you know us, you'll know it makes perfect sense. And if you don't, please reach out. We'd love to talk. Or you can head to samanl.com slash blog to learn more about us with articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools and much more to help you keep learning and growing right alongside us. All right, so final thoughts. So you've been in the business a long time. What are some core truths that you have come to live by today in life and work?
1: Well, really, for me, it's about setting boundaries so that I don't overextend myself. I've become very good at saying no, and it makes me better at my yeses. (laughs) And I think the other piece of it is just being present. It's really important to be in that moment with whomever it is in my life, whether it's a client or a friend or a family member. And that boundary setting allows me to be in that moment and give as much as I can and really be there to help and make a difference. And so I'm always striking that balance of making sure that what I'm working on energizes me and is actionable and and really adding value. So I try not to be in react mode. I also, sometimes I, I think I felt like this sounds selfish, but I've gotten over it at this point. I do put myself first in terms of I got to get the right amount of sleep and I need to exercise. If I can do those two things each day, that is good for me and good for everybody else. And so I'll say no to a lot of stuff if it intrudes with that, which sometimes means staying out late with friends or, you know, things like that, that you don't want to miss out on. But sometimes it's better if you need to do that to take care of yourself.
0: Good lessons. I love the idea of sort of the difference between react and respond to that's something I'm working on right now. Let's talk a little bit about failures. Is there a time Ooh. in your career where you were just like, gosh, I screwed that up and I learned so much from it?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for <sure. laughs> Lots Yeah. Of I them, mean, huh? like, yeah, there's, you know, like certainly plenty along the way and, you know, you come to learn after a while, like that that's okay. And you learn from it and, and you do what's best for you and for whomever else in that situation. As a result, I got fired from a really big job. Really? Yeah. And that really big job, I remember before I took the job, the CEO of the company I was working for told me, he's like, I don't think you're ready for this one yet. And he said, it's no commentary on your ability because I think you can do anything you put your mind to, but you're about to go into a very big, highly political organization where you're going to need to know how to play the game. And I wanted the job because I wanted to get back to Seattle. I was living in California at the time. And I heard him, and then I thought, ah, I'm going to do this. It'll be fine. And it wasn't. There was a knowledge gap, and there definitely was an inability on my part to like play the politics, and I got played. And I got let go as a result. But it was hard. But at the same time, man, I really got in touch with who I am and where I can really do my best work.
0: My staff might be uh, surprised to hear, like, I think I almost got fired several times coming up in this yeah. organization. Luckily yeah. I didn't, but I, I, I've i heard through the grapevine that there were lots of behind closed door conversations about how hard I was pushing or, you know, yeah. maybe I had stuff going on in my personal life. So I think it happens to all of us. All right. So my last question that I ask everybody who's on the show, tell me something that you're wrestling with right now.
1: Well. Professionally, I am worried about the market in terms of my client's ability to find talent to get the work done. There's just a huge capacity issue and such a big shift as we've seen with this great resignation, which I think is awesome on a lot of levels. But I worry about how are we going to get this work done? And more importantly, how are we going to identify these people who want to shift careers and then get them trained into something new. I think it's going to be a really tough go for a while as we work through this, you know, as a country and maybe even a world coming out of the pandemic because it's real pain that many of my clients are dealing with. And sure, you can say, we'll take less clients and raise prices, but I don't think that's the solution either. We got to figure out how to get talent and get the work done well. So I do worry about that and I'm wrestling with that.
0: Totally. Struggling with that. (laughs) Agree.
1: Mm -hmm. And personally, I have a, a sweet daughter who's heading into junior high next year, middle school. And I have to say, I'm like, oh, that is a big one. And I don't get too worried day to day about things. I just like, I'm the mom that I am and I do my best. And she's a great kid and we work through things as a family. But I'm like, wow, junior high feels big and scary. And what do I do to support her as a young woman in the world to like, be good in that new
0: setting (laughs) I love that too because I have two little girls eight and four and Mm. even my eight-year-old she got her first call from a boy last night she's eight I was like oh my gosh see what what What? am I supposed to do as a mom here I'm not really in this stage of life yet so yeah yeah so I get it well thank you Shannon you have been so great to get to know I hope we keep in touch and I just want to thank you for giving us your time and sharing all your wisdom
1: Yeah. Thank you, Misty. This was super enjoyable. I appreciate all the thought you put into it coming into the conversation.
0: Okay, friends. So hopefully you enjoyed getting to know Shannon as much as I have enjoyed getting to know her and their organization, Win Without Pitching. I wanted to leave you with the website, winwithoutpitching.com. You can go out there and read all their thought leadership. You can get access to the Two Bobs podcast she referenced. You can even, if you go to YouTube, navigate to their Win Without Pitching channel, where you can learn about how to price better, how to get past the gatekeeper, how to workshop better. There's so much good, rich content out there. And again, this is sort of a gold mine for you to check out after you listen to the show. So Shannon, thank you. Thank you for just being so transparent with your content strategy and your training curriculum. And we have so much more to learn from you and I will definitely be in touch. Talk soon.